Hey, if you're a fan of Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and Phil Jackson, as a coach or just a fan, you know, here we are in the middle of the NBA Finals with the Lakers playing. Jeff Perlman wrote a book called The Three Ring Circus that if you love basketball, you're going to love reading. I couldn't put it down. So after this timeout, you're going to hear Jeff Perlman and I discuss those three great figures. We'll be right back. MindView has just become our latest addition as a partner with Coaching You. MindView is an amazing, amazing company that literally is just releasing a platform. They have developed an incredible assessment that we have just totally, totally been blown away with. Because on this assessment that you can take in a matter of 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes on your phone, the things that you've never been able to measure before, like resilience, grit, hope, adaptability, all these things, they are able to measure them as to how you're thinking and feeling right now. This is a game changer as far as I'm concerned. I'm a strength finder guy. I love all that. But MindView is the latest technology. It is just literally coming on the market right now. The platform that they've created is second to none. The emphasis right now on your players' mental wellness is unprecedented. I'm sold on MindView. Now it's your turn. For more information about MindView, M-I-N-D-V-U-E, please contact the COO, Cleet McQuinn. His email is cmcquinn at mindview.com or visit their website at mindview.com. Hey, welcome to another edition of a Coaching You podcast with the coach Brendan Sir. And I am absolutely thrilled today to talk to Jeff Perlman, who is the author of one of the best books I've read recently, and I should say that you will read soon, uh, since we're not out yet, I believe, Jeff. But uh, it's called Three Ring Circus, and I'm going to let Jeff, I'm going to let you tell about it. But the thing that I love about this book, as I've talked to you about, is I know everyone in the book. So it was so cool. And I love the way you opened it up based on what happened to our friend Kobe, the way you opened it up with your prologue. So go right ahead, my friend. Um, well, I mean, I, uh, it is funny. I was thinking when I was doing this, that you do know everybody in this book. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, it's a good test. If, if you read it and you thought this is quality, at least I know, you know, someone who knows everyone and was there for a lot of this, um, you know, can, can, can give that seal of approval. That's, mm -hmm. that's really important to me. Um, I, I did not grow up a Laker fan. I didn't grow up a, you know, any, any ties to Lakers. I'm a guy from the East coast like you. I grew up a New Jersey Nets fan, but I always found the Laker organization really fascinating. I wrote a book about the Magic Johnson years called Showtime. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just think Shaq is one of the most interesting characters and in, probably in the history of professional sports, at least modern professional sports. I think Kobe is this really complicated figure who's also equally fascinating. And I mean, you've been, you've coached against and been a colleague of Phil Jackson for a gazillion years. And you know, he's, some in your profession, some in your professional, in your personal industry, really like him. Some people really <laughs> don't like him, but he's very interesting. He's factually an interesting human being and, and a really good coach. So I, I just wanted to dive into that. You know, I think um, I think it's really important for the people that read the book. If if you love basketball, 
or if you like the pro- and love the pro game, like right now when we when we publish uh, this next week, the po- our podcast next week, you know we're going to be right in the middle of the NBA Finals, and you know and the Lakers are in them, and having coached against them for thirty plus years, uh, I love the Lakers. You know I love to play against them. Uh, they, my first ring I I wear is from beating the Lakers four zero with Pat Riley. You know with Magic uh-huh. and those guys, yeah, but. It is a historic franchise, like the Yankees in baseball. Just a great franchise, great people involved, great characters. But the thing that I loved was, you know, I mean, was Kobe Bryant and the way that you opened up your book in your prologue. Because I remember in January where I was. I was in Orlando, Florida, and I got a call from the guy that runs my company, and, and he said, you will not believe what happened. And wow. that, and and how many and you were having breakfast, having some oatmeal, and it happened to you. So t- yeah. tell us that yeah. story, if you would. It's actually, I will say, I I had a very similar response reaction that you probably did, and it reminded me of little moments in sports. Len Bias, uh, mm-hmm. Reggie Lewis, when when guys die and you just don't see it coming, yeah. like you can't possibly see it coming. And I was, I was, I finished this book, so I'd spent two years researching. Wow. Shaq and Kobe and Phil, and you're kind of done with it. And one day, a friend of mine named Amy Bass sends me a text. I'm literally at the corner bakery in Irvine, California. And um, it said something like, uh, rumors, reports, Kobe dead. And my first reaction was probably like yours. Like, nah, you know, yeah. that that's off. There's no way that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then you start, you know, feverishly Googling. And the reports are coming in and the reports are coming in. And there's this moment where you're just, it actually really reminded me of when the Challenger exploded when I was younger. Yes. And I remember that yep. coming home and being like, wait, that didn't just happen, right? That's it. That couldn't have happened. That didn't happen. And you start thinking about it and you're like, holy crap, I can't. The, I'd still, like when I promote this book and I'm talking about Kobe Bryant, a lot of times present tense slips out because it doesn't, he still feels like you go to Twitter and his Twitter handle, there it is. And there's his last tweet and you go on YouTube and there are videos of him and he, you know, wasn't that long ago he's sitting courtside with his daughter and right. she's gone too and just the whole thing is really it would have been shocking just living out here and shocking sort of knowing the lake organization pretty well but having just finished a book on it and specifically on him in a lot of ways uh it's it was just so sad you know i think jeff um i thought you captured kobe you know from a little little young kid uh you know uh, you know, going to Italy and stuff and then coming home and, you know, going, you know, you know, getting his ass kicked in the Baker League, which I've known for years. And then, you know, going to Lower Marion High School. And I, I thought you did an incredible job. Like the whole book could have been Kobe, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you did yeah. so good on it. I mean, but tell me what it was like to, you know, to research and chronicle him. You talked to so many great people, I thought. Oh, thank you. I mean, the one thing that's interesting, actually, you're a really good guy to talk about this with, is he arrived in the NBA with a certain level of arrested development. And I, I, I got to think you've seen this with a lot of players over the years, where they mm-hmm. show up and we look at them and we think they're really cool and that they have it all together and they're on top of everything because, you know, a lot of them are good-looking guys and they're very athletic and they're making a lot of money 
and they're wearing cool uniforms and they're being cheered and they're signing autographs. And there's this thing like, right? Like, Oh my God, these guys are so cool. And a lot of them don't even know how to write a check or open a checking account or get a driver's license. And sure. I really, I really think Kobe in a lot of ways was that kid. Like he, he comes along and he's very handsome and he's a you know, good looking guy and well put together and he dresses really well. And, um, you know, I went deep into sort of his dealings with Sonny Vaccaro and he gets the Adidas shoe deal at 17. And even his name, Kobe Bryant just flows off the tongue, you know, like Great name. I asked, Great yeah, I asked name. Sonny Vaccaro if his name was Joe Jones, would it have the same sneaker appeal? He's like, probably not, you know, like that name is something. Um, and I just think it's really interesting how behind it all was a kid who didn't really know how to talk to girls, women, um, hadn't, you know, didn't have to, took a celebrity to the senior prom, the members of boys to men come to his press conference when he announces he's going to the NBA, um, grew up in Italy and then grew up in lower in the leafy suburbs. You know, like I just think, I just think he wasn't ready maturation wise when he came to the NBA, but I'm sure you've seen a lot of guys who weren't ready. Well, well, I'm going to tell you, um, so I'm, I'm in the league, uh, 15 years, right? Coached the Pistons and all that at that time. Take a job coaching a CBA team in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I get a call the day of the draft from Bill Burke, my longtime friend. Oh, yeah. Bill and I were scouts for the Dream Team. We went to Spain for two weeks. Love Bill Burke. Yeah, and, great guy. And he says, Jerry West told me to call you. And Jerry and I had been amazing friends. And been to his house for dinner, you know, know his family. And so he says, so what does he want? And he says, uh, he said, he wanted your opinion of Kobe Bryant. I said, okay. I said, I saw him play in Sonny's game in the Palace of Auburn Hills with Kevin Garnett. And he says, what do you think? I said, well, he's not ready for the NBA. (laughs) I said, he's not ready. He says, no way. I can't tell Jerry that. I said, no, no, you asked me, you asked me. I said, no, I, I think, I think he's really going to be good, but he's not ready right now. I mean, I mean, you got some really good players on your team and, and he goes, how good will he be? I said, Hey, I don't know. I mean, I coached Dumars, Vinnie Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, you know, yeah. I said, he ain't that, you know? And I said, uh, I said, you know, I had Drazen Petrovic in New Jersey prior to that. He ain't that. I said, but I said, uh, and I knew his dad from when I first came in the league, Jelly Bean. Yeah. So I said, uh, he said, first round pick. I said, probably lottery pick. No way. Wow. <laughs> no way. And sure enough, boy, do I, am I an idiot? Huh? But well, that's how? Awesome. And, but it's hard tr- to tell. Yeah, it's you don't know. Tell. You don't know at eighteen. You know, and he's and he's a baby, but. But when you're the way you chronicled the book, he wasn't ready, right? No, no. Which I and you, it's interesting. You must you must know Dell Harris fairly well. Very very yeah. good friends. Yep. And I feel like Dell Harris. So I interviewed Dell Harris in Dallas, and I really liked him. Like I really liked him. I thought he was great. Terrific. And he was definitely he was definitely sad that he was. This is before Kobe died. He was sad that he was not invited to Kobe's final game. And I think oh. I think that was a fair. I think that was a fair kind of thing to be upset about because there was a lot of pressure to play Kobe a lot uh, when his rookie year, 
And Dell Harris just didn't think he was ready and held back and held back. And even Jerry West was like, wanted him to play the kid more. And Dell wouldn't do it. And it was all because in the name of development. And I really, really, truly, truly believe in the Kobe Bryant story, Dell Harris doesn't get nearly enough credit for nurturing him as a young player. And Kobe Bryant, in many ways, hated Dell Harris for that. He hated that he was holding, he's holding me back. He's not giving me minutes, blah, blah, blah. What does this guy know? And it must have taken all Dell Harris's restraint not to just scream at Kobe Bryant, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm trying to help you. Yeah. And Dell Harris is such a calm and decent and nurturing guy that he didn't. But I think, I just think he handled him so well early on and doesn't get any credit for it. Oh, that's, that's a great way of looking at it. And Dell is a great coach. And, you know, and if you're, if I'm not mistaken, was that the year, his rookie year when they lost to at Utah? Right. Yeah, four yeah. air balls. Kobe and and he balls. got the all, he had him in the game at the end and shot all those air balls. Kobe didn't mention that, I guess, right? No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, but you know, but that's what happens on you know. And Jerry West and Dell were best friends, and so you know, uh, you know, I mean, it was a, it, it's a tough thing to do that, you know, to to play the guy, and it's just no different now than playing a first round pick that you know is not ready, but the GM wants you to play him. But this is a seventeen, eighteen year old that's doing it. You know, so when in doing your background on it, you dug so deep into like the whole thing, the chapter, and you're talking about Sonny Vaccaro and the shoe deal. I didn't even know that stuff. I had forgotten all that. Yeah. So he had a forty-eight million dollar deal. Yeah, as a high well, school he kid, he was never going to college. Like the whole like, is he going to Duke? Is he going to the <laughs> NBA? Yeah, he's going to the NBA. He's not going to Duke. Yeah, and then you know the great Arn Tellum. You know, who is, you know, just magnificent as an agent. Yeah. And the way he and Jerry West worked at pulling that off. And John Calipari and John Nash. John Nash I've known forever. I love him. He's, he's great. God bless. And But John Calipari, as the 34-year-old, how he gets tricked into not taking him. It's so funny. And John Nash, talk about, like, not a good position to be in. You're John Nash. You're hired You're by John Calipari. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you have no power. Like you right. don't have final personnel. Say, Cal- so you're like John Nash. I think he was late 40s. He has this really good resume. Everyone respects him. Yep. And like, you have to listen to like the hot-headed junior varsity coach who's now in charge of the Nets to with the final say. And you're John Nash. And I mean, I say, unlike you, John Nash loved Kobe Bryant and thought Kobe Bryant was going to be a superstar. And like, they brought him in five times and freaking loved him and. John Nash, the morning of the draft, knew they were taking Kobe Bryant. And this was going to be, you know, that was a really woebegotten franchise. I mean, you, you'd been in New Jersey. like they, New Jersey was a tough place to win. Chuck and I coached in Jersey. Yeah. I, I know. Right. I, believe me, I grew up a Nets fan. Those years, man, Draws and Kenny, uh, Derek Coleman, those are my great, years. Great team. Yep. Tie-dye uniforms, a little confusing, but otherwise, <laughs> great. And um, he, John Nash was convinced, we're taking Kobe, we're taking Kobe. And Calipari he basically fell for the old okie dokie where Kobe calls and says, yeah, I don't really want to play for you. And then Arn Tellum calls and says, he probably won't sign with you. And then in the worst thing of all, David Falk, Harry Kittles, his agent calls and says, um, Kerry really wants to play for you. If you don't draft him, I don't know if I'm going to have guys sign with you in the future. <laughs> and Calipari is like, just this, he doesn't want his first draft to be stiffed by a high schooler. You know, he's terrified, which I understand. But John Nash kept saying, listen, this is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And Calipari whipped out. And not that Kerry Kittles was a bad NBA player. Kerry Kittles was a good NBA player. Nice player. Yeah. Yeah, like a very 
if Kerry Kittles is the sixth guy on your team, you can win a championship. Sure. You know? <laughs> um, I think. But he wasn't Kobe Bryant. And Calipari, interestingly, never talks about that. I don't blame him, but he never talks about no, that. No, and, that, and that, when I when you had everything chronicled, you ready for the, you know, in the old Paul Harvey days, the rest of the story? Yeah, so exactly. Th- three weeks prior to that, the Chicago pre-draft camp is. Probably three people in the world know this story. It's the first time I've ever told it. Oh, awesome. And uh, and so we're there, Chuck Daly and I, and Chuck says, uh, the person that's the head, the president of the Nets at the time comes there and he meets with Chuck and I secretly. And basically we handshake on a deal that Chuck will become, basically run the team and I will be the coach. True story. Yeah. Handshake. That's amazing. It's done. 24 hours later, we get a call from the guy that's the president of the team and said, the famous Sea Caucus 7, the owners, <laughs> they would call them. They, they, uh, while he was making a deal with Chuck and I, they made a deal with John Calvary. <laughs> oh, my God. True story. They would wow. have, they would have had Chuck and I, and we would have picked Kobe Bryant. How about that for the rest of that's the story? Amazing. Isn't that crazy? And you know, it was actually, I would say it was like, you know, Calipari has obviously had this wonderful college coaching career. The best. Fabulous. Yeah, he's Fabulous. a great career and he's a nice guy. Like, it was great. too much too soon, too much response. There's no way when you have John Nash there, John Calipari should have final personnel say. That is insane. <laughs> you know, you know, he's trying to decide who to sign to a letter of intent that, you know, and he had Marcus exactly. Camp, you know, and stuff like that. And now all of a sudden, you know, and they gave him total control. To, and and basically he hired John to run the team, which was a great hire. And, yep. and, and Chuck and I look at each other. We go to Gibson's in Chicago and Rush Street for dinner and say, oh, well. <laughs> wow. How about that? That's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So I, I love this. Now, on your Mount Rushmore of, I, I call them perimeter players, Michael, LeBron, Kobe. I mean, those guys, they're right there, the three of them. You know, yep. on any given time, people have fluctuated between, you know, one, two, three, and certainly between two and three, right? With Michael, you know, maintaining top, you know. But that guy is such an incredible player. I mean, as a defensive coach, when I was with the Knicks, I held him to, uh, you know, I held Kobe to 60, you know. You know <laughs> nice I, job. And I'm the guy that invented the Jordan rules, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, just amazing, amazing guy. You know, and you nailed his family, I think, you know, with uh, Jelly Bean and, and Pam uh, and stuff. How how did the, what do you think about the fallout between, you know, when he ended up getting married and stuff like that? How did that affect him, you think? Kobe? Um. The thing is, like, to his credit, and I'm guessing is that, you know, when you were looking for players, you want guys exactly like this. Like, he, um, his ability to separate church and state was unlike any player I've ever written about. Wow. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, his his family did not like that he was marrying this woman. Right. Yep. His family didn't like that he was entering it without a prenuptial agreement. Um, he thought she was a gold, they thought she was a gold digger. Sure. You know, and. And they wanted, they didn't want him to do it. And then they wanted him to sign a prenup. And he basically said, no, I'm taking her. And basically they viewed it as him picking her over them and they left and they were out of his life for a long time. And it did not impact him as a basketball player. One, it's, 
I mean, the same thing with Eagle Colorado when he's going through the sexual assault. Like, say what you want about Kobe Bryant. Say what you want about that period. He was flying in and out of Eagle, Colorado, not knowing whether he was about to go to prison for 20 years on charges of raping a woman. And he's showing up, you know, getting maybe 20 minutes of sleep in the locker room before a game and scoring 30 and scoring 32. Like, the amount of mental steel on a basketball court that he had, the, the ability to put things aside. I'm sure you coach guys like that, but they're rare. guys. Uh, just, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're, you know, in 30-plus years, you know, Isaiah, <laughs> that's it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and I have 13 guys, I think they're in the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, and yeah, I mean, that's that's how rare and special they are. I mean, just... Well, you, that, think about, you think about your own life, right? Like, um, I don't know, you wake up and you... You find out that your 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 taxes are overdue and you're going to face a penalty. Well, for a lot of us, that screws up a day, and we're bad. We're in a bad mood the rest of the day. And we can't figure out why. We forget why we're in a bad mood, but we're in a bad mood for the rest of the day, and it affects our day. So, you might be going to prison for 20 years for raping someone. You're the public face of athlete excess in America, of sexual assault in America. You're on the cover of magazines for this. There are people following you everywhere. And then you go and score 33 against Chicago. How do you do that? That's insane. It doesn't, it's again, I don't care what you think about Kobe as like, did he do it? Didn't he do it? The mental ability to, to compartmentalize is unbelievable. I do not have that. Most people don't have that. He has that. That Mamba mentality is real. It's the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree. It no, really it's is. the real deal on that. Prepare like the pros with the new FastDraw. FastDraw is the number one affordable coaching tool used by pro and high school level teams worldwide. With FastDraw, you can save your plays and playbooks digitally, attach video, and share with other coaches and your players in seconds. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching content and resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 8,000 free plays and drills from their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Don't forget to use promo code CU10, that is CU10, to receive 10% off your next Fast Model purchase. Let's talk about Shaq. I thought, and, I, and, and again, I've known Shaq forever. And since he came into the league, you know, in 92, when he came in, uh, you know, shoot, uh, you know, you know, Chuck and I, I think we're coaching the Nets. He's the one when he famously tore down that basket. It was in the Meadowlands, as you oh, remember, yeah. right? Was that Dwayne Sinsis playing center against him? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. The late Dwayne Sinsis. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But, you know, but, but Shaquille, um, you know, such an, I thought, you know, yeah, you had such great stuff on him from the movies to uh, the Leonard Armato stuff. I mean, the whole free agency thing with the magic. How much fun was that to do about? I mean, Shaquille is another one of those great, great figures that, you know, they're book worthy in themselves. Uh, how, 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 how much did you enjoy covering that? Loved. Yeah. Loved everything about it. Loved spending time with him. Thought he was one of the. I always say we have this thing in my house where like when Muhammad Ali died, well, so when Muhammad Ali was alive, he could travel anywhere and he made people feel good. Mm. You know, like you see Muhammad Ali in an airport, you want to pose for a picture with him. You see him 
People want to hug him. It doesn't matter if you're white, if you're black, if you're Republican. If you're, people loved him. And I really feel like there are very few people who have filled that gap. And one of them is Shaquille O'Neal, where he just makes people feel good. Great point. There's something about him that makes people feel good. And I think it's honestly that he's always owned his celebrity in a very sort of communicable way. Like it, it's not like, I used to think like, I remember when I'd watch Michael Jackson when he was alive and he'd go to a mall and he'd be surrounded by security guards and people would say, God, he can't go anywhere. And I would say he can't go anywhere because he set it up because he can't go anywhere. Like he's created this thing that exists, this mystique, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Shaq, when Kobe died, Shaq, a few days later, was at the Staples Center. And he walks out the Staples Center's front door. And fans are surrounding him. And he leads a chant of Kobe, Kobe. And everyone's surrounding him. And no one's trying to hurt him. And no sure. one's even asking for an autograph. It's just this moment. Like, he understands that he, he, he has this joy about him. And people feel it. And they radiate in it. Um, I just like the number of stories of that guy being a great teammate. I've never seen a better superstar teammate. I'm not talking about motivating players like Jordan or Isaiah did. Sure. I'm talking about caring about his guys. I'm like, I always use the example, Mike Penberthy of Masters College shows up. He makes the team in 2000. He doesn't own a suit. He owns one suit that he buys at Banana Republic off the rack. <laughs> Shaq asked him, do you own any suits? And he's like, no, barely any money. And um, Shaq says, why don't you come, come tomorrow, come early tomorrow. And he shows up the next day and Shaq is there and Shaq's personal teller is there. And Shaq has the guy make him six suits and buys him the suits. There was another player out of Penn State named Joe Crispin. No Joe kid. Crispin makes yep, the Lakers no a year later. He's now the coach of Rowan. Yep. And oh yeah, you're from Jersey. He's the coach yep. of Rowan. Really, Glassboro yeah. State, baby. In oh, the old days. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I'm a blue hen, Delaware, not that far away. <laughs> um, and um, he makes a team, and he's the last guy to make the team. And Shaq says, "I want to fly your family in for your first home game." Wow. No, 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 man. I want to fly your family in. And Joe Crispin blows him off. And a few days later, Shaq comes up to him and says, listen, give me your family's name. I'm flying them in. He not only flies them in for Joe's first home game, he flies them in first class. Oh, like, wow. he just, he had his flaws. He could be moody. He could be a pain in the ass. But, like, he was a truly decent human being who wanted people to feel good about themselves. And that is a really unique and special quality, not just in basketball, but just in life. You know, Shaquille is just an amazing guy and, you know, had the pleasure now at towards the end of my career to coach at LSU and, 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 you know, Shaq finally acknowledged that I finally came to a real educational institution and stuff, you uh -huh. know, and, and he loves his school. And, uh, and it's so neat that anytime that you see him, you know, you're one of his people, you know, for, and I, and I love that about him, but you know, he's one of the kindest guys, as you said. But one of the things that I really love it, because we talk so much about when players finish their careers, what happens to them. So Kobe, when he finishes careers, he's destined, he's ready to roll, right? I mean, the, the Emmy, the Oscar, you know, I mean, and yeah. everything else, he start, anything he's touching is turned to gold, right? And and Shaquille, as much as money as he has also made in the business, I think right now, I'm not sure he's ever made more money, you know, with his endorsements, his business opportunities, his television career. I mean, I applaud a guy like that. That is what this is all about, you know, when this is. But I think the guy is incredible. What did you find out? And, and, and you know, when I also got a chance to coach uh, the Magic with Chuck, we, 
you know, I, we li- I lived in the same subdivision with uh, Sarge and his great mom. And uh, and so that was neat. And and just to, you know, get a chance, what did you find out about Shaquille that you didn't know before, Jeff? Um, it's interesting. He really, um, one of the reasons, there were multiple reasons he left Orlando. One of them was his agent, obviously, Leonard sure. Amato, really pulling him to L.A. Sure. One of them was the DeVos family just being kind of not the best about keeping a superstar and undervaluing him. One was the poll that the Orlando Sentinel ran. Incredible. Asking, is Shaquille O'Neal worth $115 million? It was one of the strangest worded polls ever because nobody's worth $115 million. You know, like, you're, if, you're high, if your kid's second grade teacher isn't worth it, I'm sure a basketball player isn't worth it, but that's not... It wasn't within the context. The real question is, if the Orlando make, Magic are making X amount of money, is Shaquille O'Neal worth X amount? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. But in and of itself, of course not. Nobody's worth that money. So what I found really fascinating is how sensitive he was and how bruised he was and how there's always talk, oh, there's this poll in the paper and it really bothered him. And I, I was always kind of thinking, eh, maybe that's bullshit. Maybe that's not true. Sure. But it's true. He was hurt. He was really, really hurt and wounded. And that poll came out when the 96 Olympic team was working out in Orlando. Yep. So at Disney, this comes in. Yep. Yeah. At Disney. So, you know, there's Barkley seeing this and being like, you're going to play for these guys. This is what they think of you in this cowpoke town. You're going to play for them. And he's just getting ridiculed. Like, this is what they think of you. 90% of these people don't think you're worth the money. And it's amazing how we see people, it kind of comes back to what I said earlier. We see guys like Shaq, we see guys like Kobe, and we assume that they are exuding with confidence, just 100% confidence, because he's Shaquille O'Neal, and he's Shaq, and he's famous. And, like, this poll comes out, and he's really wounded, like a, like a, you know, like a pet dying. Like, he's just wounded. And it's amazing to me how sad. And he was, it's the same with the Kobe relationship. Like, it's not that he hated Kobe. He was just wounded that Kobe didn't need the relationship. Like he wanted to be Batman to Kobe's Robin. And he wanted to be the big brother to Kobe's little brother. He wanted Kobe to say, Hey, can we go to dinner so I can talk to you about this? Or, Hey, I'm having a problem. Can you help me with this? Hey, do you think, I don't know, what kind of suit would you buy? Kobe gave him none of that. Kobe didn't invite him to his wedding. And I just think like, it wasn't like he needed to be Kobe's best friend, but he needed to be needed. And he's a very sensitive human being. Um, and it's you don't see that. You don't expect that in a 7-foot, 330-pound package. Boy, that is a great description. And, and really, Shaquille is all about relationships. He is so loyal to the people that you'd say, he even knows that guy? You know, the people that he's had around him. And I think he said Tracy and you know, stuff like that. And, yep. you know, and, and he was so loyal to those people. And, and it's, you know, white guys, black guys, it didn't matter. He was the matter. Yeah, exactly right. And I, and that's what I really appreciate about him. Wait, I'll tell you one thing that I love about Chuck. Like, love. It's one of my favorite things. Is, um, all right, so I wrote a book about the 80s Lakers called Showtime. Mm-hmm. And Great book. Thank you. And A.C. Green is drafted by the Lakers, I think, in 85. And A.C. Green is the world's most famous basketball-playing virgin. <laughs> and he arrives, he arrives in L.A. as a, as a virgin. All the players know he's a virgin. <laughs> and they kind of make his life miserable. Like, they kind of make it a joke. And they're always trying to get him laid. And they're always <laughs> passing around a hat, taking bets. Who's going to get AC Green laid? And 
it's definitely funny and it makes me laugh, but it's a little mean, you know, like it's actually kind of mean, like he's a 22 year old kid who's actually very religious and he doesn't want to have sex and it's not funny. And it is funny, but it's not funny to AC Green. And fast forward, the Lakers draft Mark Madsen. And Madsen comes out of Stanford. Right. I don't know if he's a virgin or not. He probably is. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a Mormon. He's oh, a I, I forgot about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He went on a mission to Spain. He really, he's, he's religious. Um, and Shaq takes this guy under his wing in ways big and small. Not only does he take him and buy him a wardrobe, not only does he offer to buy him a car, but the thing he did that I love, they would be on flights. And if there was a new flight attendant, Shaq would always sit next to Mark Madsen. And if a flight attendant's walking by, Shaq would say, hey, excuse me, are you Mormon? Are you Mormon? And she'd be like, no. And you're like, okay, don't worry about it. There was one day Mark Madsen shows up at Staples Center, and a woman who works in the front office is like, hey, Mark, you want to hear something funny? So last night I was out with a group of my friends at a restaurant, and Shaq was there. And he walked up to our table and said, are any of you women Mormon? Because I have a guy who you'd really like. like and he wasn't making fun of him, and he yeah. wasn't mocking him. He actually was trying to help him meet a nice Mormon woman. That's- that is unbelievable. Yeah. No, that that is great. Oh, that is no, Shaquille is uh, is amazing. We're thrilled to have our longtime partners and friends at Dr. Dish Basketball on board as sponsors of the Coaching You podcast. Dr. Dish machines are undoubtedly the most user-friendly and advanced machines in the world of basketball today. Dr. Dish has completely revolutionized and reimagined the shooting machine to provide the best solution on the market. Join top programs around the world like Duke, North Carolina, Florida, and countless others and upgrade your shooting machine to Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish machines are the best way to increase purposeful reps in your program to get players better, faster, while tracking progress along the way. Dr. Dish provides so much more than just your standard shooting machines with custom training, pro trainers, and coaches on demand, real-time and detailed analytics, and top-of-the-line drills and workouts. If you're looking to take your program to the next level, look no further than Dr. Dish for the best basketball training machine in the world. If you have an old machine that's just collecting dust in your gym, did you know that you can trade that into Dr. Dish for up to $1,500 off and get a new dish? Make sure to give our friends at Dr. Dish a follow at Dr. Dish B-Ball on Twitter and Instagram for great daily drills, workouts, tips, and inspiration. Or contact us at drdishbasketball.com. Don't forget to mention Coaching You or our podcast for $300 off your purchase. And now my favorite, now my favorite, the great Phil Jackson. Okay, so I had the honor of, you know, coaching against Phil on those wonderful years as his assistant to Doug Collins with Chicago when he got into the league as a coach. And then, of course, when he took over after Doug got fired and, and he dethroned us, you know, obviously in a very brutal way as the last dance verified. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I always, uh, and this was a great thing about working with Chuck Daly is that Chuck Daly was Switzerland. He had no enemies. Uh, you know, and he, he respected coaches so much. Uh, he never flaunted. He wasn't arrogant and he liked Phil. He liked, he loved Doug, uh, loved Pat Riley, you know? And th- so there was always that great respect there as lifers and stuff. But I think, you know, Doug, uh, you know, Phil was a very unique guy, 
what did you <laughs> explain to our listeners what you found out about Phil that made him so unique? I mean, I'll tell you what, Pete Babcock, obviously, you know, great Pete, friend. Yep. Great guy. Like just one of the truly nice guys in sports. And, um, he told me a story where he said when Phil Jackson was coaching Albany in the CBA, and Pete was in the NBA, I think with Atlanta, he said Phil would call him every now and then and be like, hey, what do you think of this player? What do you think of that player? I'm thinking of this, or what do you think of this idea? He said he would call him and seek his advice. And Pete said years later, Phil's with the balls, and Pete Babcock is working on a charity. And he goes up to Phil one day, and it was a native about some Native American cause. Yeah, so, Pete was really Phil, into that, right? Yeah, and Phil was really into that. So he goes up to Phil, and he's like, hey, Phil, you know, I'm working on this thing, blah, 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 blah. And he just notices that Phil is not listening to him at all. And, like, he's just ignoring him. And he kind of just goes, all right, well, don't worry about it. And he was really kind of hurt by that. Like, he really was kind of hurt by that and turned off by that. And I think I, – so I spent eight hours with Phil Jackson in Montana, and I loved every minute of it. And it was awesome, and he was nice, and he's a fascinating human being. Sure. And, I, and a curious guy times a thousand. You know, like you meet guys in sports who don't care about anything but sports. He's the opposite of that, 100% the opposite. I think he rubbed you tell I me, mean, you know, better than I do. I think he rubbed a lot of colleagues the wrong way. He was not, he didn't want to be part of the club. He wasn't looking to go golfing with other coaches in the off season. Um, he didn't want to trade notes with you. He, you know, Dell Harris was pissed off at Phil. He thought Dell Harris, uh, Phil Jackson was kind of vying for his job when he still had the job. He wasn't the only guy to say that. I think Jeff Van Gundy later on had that same complaint when he was with the Knicks. I just think he was so quirky and untraditional and a little bit awkward, actually. Like, he wasn't, in a way, he had a little of that Kobe thing where you look at him and you think, oh, Phil Jackson, good-looking guy, has a lot of rings, wears fancy suits, dating Jeannie Buss, mm-hmm. you know, coach Michael Jordan. He actually was kind of a quirky bird. Like, he's not, he's not a superb conversationalist. He, I don't think he probably gets every social cue out there. Like, I think sometimes people mistake that for, He's a jerk. Why is that guy such a jerk? And it's not, he's just not chatty. And he's not one of the writers, Howard Becker, who covered great, the Lakers. Great friend, yeah. Oh, and a great writer. Yep. He told me a story recently where one of the writers was like, hey, Phil, Merry Christmas. And Phil Jackson goes, um, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. do you guys have any questions for me? And like, <laughs> Howard was like, it wasn't him being a jerk. It was just, he was kind of quirky. And I would say that's my read on Phil Jackson. He's a, obviously a great coach. He understands players really well, and sometimes he can be kind of arrogant. There's no doubt about it. And sometimes I just think he was quirky and and missed the same cues that Kobe Bryant probably missed. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, I think uh, I think that's that's a brilliant read. I think you know, having been a player, um, and then taking the long way into the league coaching, which is not like the G League now or the old CBA. Like, well, the CBA, when I went into it in 96, uh, when he was in there, it was, it was Rough Riders. I mean, it was, it was, it was really, it was, it was really hard business at that time. So I give him a lot of credit that he loved the coach and wanted to teach and stuff like that and did a heck of a job. But I think also growing up in North Dakota, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, uh, he was different, right? Uh, as, as a good way of putting it. Uh, and did not have those like so when he gets into the league at Chicago to be an assistant coach to Doug, he's really placed there almost by 
Jerry Krause, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Doug yeah. doesn't go looking for him, you know, and, and I think it was like a arranged marriage almost, and I think that was, uh, so he didn't have that benefit like nowadays where you you basically serve an apprenticeship and you come up and you have all these unique relationships. And then when he also came in, it was funny, you know, like, you know, Chuck Daly and Pat Riley, they developed their own style of play and everything. He basically did a hybrid thing where he said, okay, we're using Tex Winner's triangle offense. It's not mine. And we're going to use John Bach's man-to-man defense with some of my Red Holzman concepts, but we're going to play defense. So really, he was more like a kind of a CEO, but not a smooth business CEO, right? But really, really a hell of a coach. And I think you're right. I think his game management and I think his player relationship stuff was off the charts off the charts, which is really many times more important than X's and O's. And I also think if you look at his career, people would be like, oh, he just did it on Tex Winters. Like, he never really tried taking credit for Tex Winters. It's not like he was like, and then I invented the triangle. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he 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 was not trying to hide Tex Winter, and a lot of guys would have. It wasn't like... He didn't see it wasn't like he was shoplifting Tex Winter's offense. He was he brought him along everywhere he went. Loved him. Their relationship ran a little hot and cold sometimes, but he was not he wasn't trying to take credit for being the genius of the triangle. No, not at all. But and you know, the players, as you know, both in Chicago and LA, hated the offense in the beginning because yeah. it was so hard to learn because it was not like a normal NBA offense. You had to really read defense, and the players weren't wired like that. Jordan hated it. Kobe hated it originally, but then they fell in love with it when they found out how good it was for them. So I give him a lot of credit. But you know, he and it's funny. You know, he, he you know even when he went to the Knicks to run the Knicks organization, he basically did opposite of what Pat Riley's done now with Eric Spolster, is that he's basically said, "You coach my team, you're going to run my triangle." And, yeah. and, and, you know, rather than say to, like Riles did to Eric, you know, hey, I'll be here to support you any way I can, coach the team the way you want, you know. And uh, and I thought that was interesting, you know, uh, the, the way he did that. But You know what that reminded me of? Yeah. I always remember, I, I always thought like a really bad way to coach was, I remember, are you a football guy? Sure. I remember when Bum Phillips was fired as a coach of the Houston Oilers, and he became the coach of the New Orleans Saints. And he had a completely different personnel. He had a different kind of running back. He had George Rogers instead of Earl Campbell. And instead of adjusting to his personnel, he brought the same exact offense he was running with Earl Campbell, and Earl Campbell was in his prime, to the Saints. And it was a disaster because you have to be able to adjust to your personnel. And I feel like the only mistake, the only big mistake Phil Jackson has made publicly in his career was kind of like what you just said, coming to the Knicks and and traveling with the system, not adjusting to the players. Yeah, and I think if, if I'll be honest with you, now here's the difference. My opinion, as a, someone that studies coaching every day, is I think if Phil went there to coach and did that, no problem. Yes. No problem. Agree. But, Agree. you know, whether it's, you know, Derek Fisher with no experience as a coach, I often say, you know, if Steve Kerr had gone there and he had run it, he probably wouldn't have, you know, he'd be out of coaching now, right? Yeah. Instead of going to Golden State and being a combo hybrid of Pop and Phil and being a magnificent coach, you know, having that growth mindset of learning what to do and stuff and using what he had learned from the best uh, and fit his personality. I think that's so important. What did you think of Phil? What was his, what was his uh, how did he feel about 
in because he wrote books during this about his coaching of Kobe and Shaq? Um, hmm. I think he struggled with Kobe to a certain degree in the same way everyone kind of struggled with Kobe early on. Um, I think he, he came with the benefit of respect. You know, like he had sure. the six rings with Jordan and Kobe loved Jordan. So Kobe wanted Phil Jackson to be his coach. Shaq wanted, it was great. He shows up. He says, look, Kobe is a centerpiece of this offense. Kobe, you're the number two. Kobe doesn't love that, but he kind of understands it. And I think through the years, it was always an exasperation with Kobe. I mean, Jeff's always exasperating. Um, he didn't, obviously it was a struggle coaching a centerpiece who can't hit free throws like that was not <laughs> the best, Yeah, but it was always, I mean, especially that last year, Oh, three or four. I mean, Kobe drove Phil Jackson to drink. He just wouldn't listen, lost interest in the triangle, was tired of playing with Shaq. Didn't want to be the number two guy felt like he should be leading the league in scoring, you know, on and on and on. Um, I think just after a while, he got really old and tired. Like, Phil had his year for a while, longer than he probably most coaches would have. Sure. By the end of it all, though, I just think, I mean, you saw I mean, it's really interesting what happened. Kobe gets a year with Rudy Tomjanovich for part of the season. I think Frank Hamlin took over after that when Rudy got, couldn't coach anymore. Exactly. And by the end of that year, Kobe wants Phil Jackson back. You know, sometimes you don't know what you've got. It's a cliche. You don't know what you have until it's gone. Yep. And I think he really needed to be without him to appreciate how well he used him. Great point. What was your, your biggest takeaway now as your book has now been published? What, what, what is your biggest thing now that, you know, you want learners to take away from it? Uh, I'd say two things. Number one, there's no greater joy in journalism than writing about J.R. Ryder. I could write about <laughs> J.R. Ryder for 7,000 years and always enjoy it. Uh-huh. Just, he's just the combination of otherworldly talent otherworldly absent-mindedness and like a love of marijuana just makes him the best <laughs> guy to ever. He's just, the, he's so talented. I mean, he's so talented and so absent-minded. And so, I mean, my favorite story from the whole book is it's a small, tiny little thing, but he, um, he misses three practices in a row because his car broke down, but he only lived 300 yards in the practice facility. <laughs> so I just love that. Um, but I would say the takeaway overall, like what I hope, I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, this dynasty, even though it happened recently, gets a little overlooked. I feel like LeBron came in so shortly after and people's attention were brought to that. The Golden State dynasty happens very quickly. Kobe yeah. wins two more without Shaq. But I just think people forget that for about an eight to 10 year period, Shaquille O'Neal was the dominant force in the NBA, completely unstoppable. You couldn't guard him with one. You could barely guard him with two. Um and I hope more people remember how ridiculously good he was in his prime. Well said. Well said. When does the book hit the stands? It's out. It just came it's, out. It's out. Oh, perfect. It's okay. Out. Yep. Well, you know, I, Jeff, you know, I, I, I love your books anyway, but, you know, I, I think this one, for me, it was one of the best I've read because I just knew everyone. You know, sometimes you read books. Oh, yeah. And, and, man, I just said, this is good. You know, I want 10 more chapters, man. <laughs> you know, if I paid you, if we went back in time 20 years ago, yeah. and I said to you, what are the odds Nick Van Exel becomes a highly respected NBA assistant coach? How much money are you putting on that? I, I would I would have bet the most money I ever made in one year, which was <laughs> a lot of money, half a million bucks. I would have bet it. No way. No way. It's amazing. It's and, amazing. And, 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 and Del Harris and I, uh, you know, He's very good friends of my wife and I, and, and and I love Dell. But one of the things, 
and 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 I can only say this about a friend, but what you had, Nick Van Exel calling Del Harris in the book, my lord, my oh. lord. I mean, it was crazy stuff. You know, no man needs to be called that, but I mean, yet oh. you had that stuff, priceless, absolute priceless. Great job, brother. Thank you. Really oh, thank you job. so much. It was awesome talking right. to you. I really appreciate it. Well, listen, best of luck and uh, go well, my friend. All right. Thank you so much. I'll tell you what, you got to go out and get this book because this is one that, again, you want to know about Phil Jackson, who I think is one of the most interesting figures in NBA coaching history, the great Kobe Bryant, who I feel is Mount Rushmore of perimeter players ever in the league, you know, with LeBron, MJ, you know, and then... Of course, Shaquille O'Neal, my LSU Tiger. Shaquille maybe is the most powerful player in my NBA coaching career that I've ever tried, faced. So I think you'll love it. Go out, get this book. Until next week, this is the coach, Brendan Sir. Brendan Sir.